Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs think that the value of their company is driven by the industry they're in, right? So they look at publicly traded companies and say, well, because XYZ publicly traded company is trading for whatever, 12 times earnings, we should be trading for something similar. And maybe you go to an industry event and you find out that companies in your industry are trading for a certain multiple. However, what we find when we look at the data, and now we've gone through more than 20,000 business owners, we find something very different plays out. We've seen companies in the same industry trade at half the industry multiple because they've got some serious flaws in the business. And we've also seen companies that trade at 2 and 3x the industry multiple because they've structured it differently, approached the selling of their company and the valuing of their company through the lens of these eight factors that acquirers care about. And so to look at your business through the same lens, um, I want you to take 15 minutes and complete the value builder questionnaire. You're going to get a score and the score relates to how valuable your business would be in the eyes of an acquired. It's going to help you think through your business in a different way. Go to valuebuildersystem.com. So when I do an episode for Built to Sell Radio, I have a few minutes of chat with the uh, entrepreneur on the other end of the phone prior to actually hitting record. And one of the questions I say is, look, everybody's going to want to know what you sold your company for. Uh, do you mind if I ask you that directly? Do we need to nibble around the edges of that question? Um, and with my next guest, Yvonne Tokini, who I'll introduce in a second, uh, she said, John, I can't talk about the sale at all. I mean, um, you know, the details are all under confidentiality and I, j I just can't get into the details. And I thought, oh man, this is going to be a total waste of time. Yet when I actually got into the interview, I I really enjoyed this conversation. So I want to preface it with saying that you're not going to hear the secret to doubling the value of your company. You're not going to hear a lot of negotiation mechanics in this interview. But what I do like about what Yvonne shares is the emotional journey she went through in, in getting her business ready to sell, uh, getting herself intellectually sort of around that headspace and some of the benefits, um, both practical, spoiler alert, she buys herself a Tesla at the end, but also sort of emotional of actually selling her company and, uh, and some of the, 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 the levity she feels now having gone through it. So again, with a, with a precursor to, to, so that you know we're not going to get into the mechanics that we usually get into on an episode, but I think there's value here from Yvonne Tokini. Uh, she started Tokini, the agency, in 1980 and built it up, and it was acquired in 2015 by Archer Malmo, the Memphis-based uh, agency uh, of, of great record. Uh, she had 28 employees, and she has an interesting story to share, and so I'll let her do uh, the telling of that story. Here is Yvonne Tokini. Yvonne, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you had one of the hottest creative shops in Austin, Texas. It was called Tokini, which you've helped me uh, kind of memorize <laughs> by you know talking about words like zucchini and bikini and uh, what do you need? This is your surname, of course. Tell us about your agency. I started my agency in 1980. Um, I was only 24 years old, and it rode the wave of technology transformation for 35 years. It kept me interested because our world was constantly changing. Uh, when I started this business, I was in the, a creative field. I was a designer. I had never 
had a business course. And so I always say that I learned everything I know by screwing up. (laughs) And um, it was interesting to me to stick with the business because it felt like every day I had a new job with the way that technology was transforming the field of marketing. So you'd been running it for... Uh, let me see, 80, 90, 20, like 35 years when you mm-hmm. decided to sell it. Mm-hmm. What was the triggering event that would make you want to sell after 35 years? I mean, a lot of people after 35 years would say, this is going to be it. I, you know, I'm going to go out boots first. But you decided to sell. What, what triggered that? Well, I thought about selling a lot during those years. And um, if you'll remember in the 90s, a digital agency was a rare thing. And the digital agencies or anybody who was doing digital marketing was getting multiples like around 10 times. And at that time, we ten were doing times, a lot of 10 times profit. Earnings. Yeah, yeah. 10 times uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. So at that time, we were doing a lot of work for Dell and we were growing as fast as we could. And we had 120 people and we were on this roll and it felt easy. And I thought, man, why should I sell now? I could, I could wait until next year or next year. And, and then um, the market crashed after 9-11 and uh, things changed and digital agencies weren't so rare anymore. And the whole landscape transformed. So, so, by the, so I kept thinking, well, that's something I'll sell later. I'll do that at some point in the future. And... Uh, I had this little place in my inbox on my email where I would sort of drag and drop all the phone messages I would get from brokers who were interested in talking because I really didn't know how to have the conversation or I didn't know what to ask or how to approach it. And anyway, I was busy. So um, one day I was just sitting at my desk and this guy happened to call me. He was a broker from New York and he was just such a nice guy that I ended up talking to him. And so selling at that particular point in time kind of became almost an impulse decision. Like, okay, maybe this is the right time. So it was actually a broker reaching out. I mean, what was their line? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes brokers use lines like, uh, you know, I've got a buyer interested. Like, how did they start the conversation with you? I've heard every line possible, honestly. Um, yeah, he he said that he was representing somebody who was looking for a company in Austin to acquire. And I'll tell you that when I started this business in 1980 in Austin, Texas, nobody had heard of Austin, Texas, nor was it really very easy to recruit anybody to move here. Today, it's a different story. It's a hot place to live, and it's known to be a real digital center for uh, the arts and for marketing. So I had seen enough ups and downs to know that this is not going to last, that this interest in Austin was a probably a, a, a limited time <laughs> offer. And, and so I thought, okay, this is, this is the right time to talk to this guy. And, and he really took more of a conversational tone with me, less of a hard sell and, and just more kind of made friends with me. It was just the right approach for me because I'm pretty suspicious of these broker calls. But something must have been going on in your business or your personal life to make you open to the conversation. I mean, if you've got an inbox full of these emails mm-hmm. and voicemails, um, I, I got to imagine there was more than just the tone of his voice that that mm-hmm. that that made you open to the conversation. What what was going on in your life, either personally or professionally, that you thought eh, maybe maybe I should actually indulge this guy in a conversation? Well, I was starting to feel like the 
the business itself is hard. And um, I was starting to feel the the challenges I was facing and the problems I was solving were problems I had solved before. And though they were shaped differently because it was a different time, I was just starting to feel like this isn't that interesting and it's really, really hard. And I was curious to think about what was next for me in my life. The thing that was hard was that I am not a quitter and I don't ever give up. I'm a competitive person and I like to win and I don't mind working really hard. And I always saw selling as the equivalent of quitting or giving up. And um, I felt I I just always felt I'm not ready to give up or I'm not ready to quit. But I ha- when I stopped thinking of it that way, when I started thinking, man, this just isn't that much fun anymore and it's hard and I'd kind of like to know what's next for me, that's when I became more receptive to the concept of selling. That's interesting that you would think of selling as quitting. I mean, for a lot of people, uh, you know, selling's the home run. I mean, selling's the objective, selling's the end goal. Uh, selling's the moonshot. Before I know. It, it was quitting. What is that culturally or is that so like how you grew up or what, what was it that made you feel that that selling was the equivalent of retreat or quitting? Um, yeah, it was defeat for me. I, and I think it's because I grew the business from nothing as a little clueless 24 year old. When I started it, it became my identity. It was who I was. And when I went out in public, it was like I was a shining star. And people, especially women, came up to me and said, how did you do it? How did you raise two children as a single mother and have this business? And how could you be so successful and do all those things? And, you know, it it made me feel glorious in a way to, to wear that identity in public and, and to be that person that um, people perceived me to be. And I thought, if I don't have that anymore, then what am I? So how did you get over that? I stopped feeling like it was real and true. And I started, I guess, tuning in more to how tired I was of just spinning the business up every day and keeping it going and solving the problems. And it's, I think it's, I, <laughs> my parents were both school teachers and I remember them coming home after a long day and sitting at the dinner table and talking about, you know, solving the problems of teaching a third grade class and they solved the same problem every single year for a different group of third graders. And I started feeling like I have these young people that are just cycling through this business and I've trained them to do the same thing a hundred times. And I'm just tired of doing that. You know, I just want, I want to, a, a new problem to solve. But a lot of your identity was wrapped up in, in in this business and the the mm-hmm. idea that 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 is what gave you sort of gravitas in the community when you walked into a room people know it's Yvonne Tikini she has a reputation she's one of the you know successful successful women entrepreneurs in Austin I mean that that's what people sort of started to perceive you as they did and they that the surprise for me is that they still do 
even though I've sold. And that is just something that I didn't know. And I don't know how people are supposed to know that, you know, um, I, I sold the business and I'm still working in the business. I'm still doing really in a, in a way, a lot of the same things, but I'm, I'm not doing the things anymore that I was not good at, which is a big relief. And I'm able to see the business flourishing in a way that I could never have made happen on my own. So let's talk and about, let's talk that's about phase that. two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's talk about that because, because you did decide to sell it and it was an emotional sort of, uh, uh, decision, but you made it, uh, tell us about the negotiation itself. Um, you're, you're on the phone with this broker. They say they've got a deal. Kind of take us fast forward. Mm-hmm. What happens next? The company who ended up buying us was the first person, the company who approached us originally, Archer Malmo, and they're in Memphis. And so right after we had that conversation, uh, the owners of Archer Malmo showed up in the office. We gave them a capabilities presentation. I didn't tell the staff really, I didn't disclose what we were actually thinking about because I wasn't sure it would work or even that we wanted to do that. So we kind of managed it in secret a little bit. Um, and they made us an offer, and, and we were not that happy with the original offer. So we approached a consultant named David Baker, who helps ad agencies, digital agencies all over the world. And he's brilliant. He helped us do a, a professional evaluation. And in a period of about 20 days, he introduced us to um, a number of other agencies, and within two months, we had six other offers from other agencies to consider. And I think the fact that we had a professional valuation, and then we also were able to spin up some competition, that improved our negotiation power. So um, the offer got a lot better uh, than it initially had been because of those can you give us factors. A, can you give us a sense of how much better the offer got because of the competition? Um, well, I, you know, I would say at, at least um, maybe three times as good. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's that's amazing. And that's as a result of having obviously competitor. Now, how did how did, did were you working with the original broker? or Was David Baker this this special specialist in, in agencies? Was what did he take over the negotiation or was it still the mm-hmm. guy from New York who, who negotiated for you? Well, David Baker negotiated with the guy from New York who represented okay. Archer Malmo. And he also talked to the other contenders um, so he acted on our behalf in a, in a, in a way that um, it wasn't like we hired him to, to formally represent us. He, he, it was more of an informal deal, and, uh, and he works on an hourly rate. So it was actually just a, a perfect arrangement for us. I, I would recommend it to anybody who has an agency to, to deal with him. With the old day. It's a very interesting point. I want to take a step back and, and share with Built to Sell listeners this concept of a buy side versus a sell side M&A professional. So there are two different flavors of M&A professionals and you have to make sure you're talking, you, you know who you're speaking to because their, their, their role in either 
being on the sell side or buy side has an impact on uh, their bias and obviously who they're negotiating on behalf of. A sell side M&A professional is someone who is going to sell your company for them, uh, for you. They are they are representing you and they are selling your company. A buy side M&A professional has been mandated or hired by a company to go buy a company. And in Yvonne's case, the gentleman from New York was a buy side M&A professional who had been who had been commissioned by Archer Mamo to buy companies of a certain size, and in this case, in Austin, et cetera. And so again, when you want to make sure, it's just like selling a house, uh, you want to make sure the agent that is representing you is in fact representing you <laughs> and is not representing the other side. Neither side, uh, I'm not suggesting, are, are doing something wrong. They're just representing their best interests, which are the interests of their client. And so it's really important to know whether you're the person in front of you is is a buy side M&A professional, or in fact, they're representing you in, on the sell side. Um, and in Yvonne's case, it sounds like David Baker was was acting as a sell side M&A professional, although being compensated hourly. And the, the buy side gentleman in New York was um, was representing Archer Malmo. Exactly. A little bit of a diversion there, but I thought it was important <laughs> to, to draw that that out. So the offer increases substantially based on this competitive. Um, uh, discussions uh, as you as you think back on the negotiations and maybe reflecting on some of the other offers that uh, that you did not accept. Maybe talk a little bit about anything unique in those those five offers that you did not accept. That uh, as you reflect now on uh, were warning signs for you or anything in those that that, that could be noteworthy for our listeners. It was fascinating to me to notice how different the companies were and to imagine our future with in partnership with each of those different entities. So for instance, some of them were agencies in the Midwest who really didn't have any digital capabilities and they would they were wanting to acquire us so that they would have the capability to do something that they couldn't do right now and that they knew they, they would need uh, to survive. And there were problems with that, you know, the fact that they, they really don't understand our business and, um, and how would we work with somebody in the Midwest who, who doesn't even understand what we do. Um, and, and then there, were, there was a, a wonderful company that was out of uh, Chicago that had offices in Poland and Toronto and New York, and they were quite sophisticated, but they were owned by hard, uh, hardline business guys. And there would not have been a cultural fit there, even though that company was very appealing to me from a business standpoint. And the opportunity to do very interesting work would have presented itself had we aligned with them. It would have not been a cultural fit. And I, I could see half my people quitting. They would have just mashed money out of us and looked at us as a, as a little money machine. Whereas Archer Malmo, the company that ended up buying us, had the same sort of spirit that we have. We are a small family-owned company with a with the soul that is sort of kind and nice to work for, and they are the same kind of company. And it that's what it was like to negotiate with them, and that's what it's like now to work with them. And as a as a result of that, we don't have a single person on our staff who's left. How many how many employees? Year. How many employees did you have when you sold the company? We had uh, about 28 people at that time, and we had pretty high turnover because it's a pretty stressful job, and it's a you know it's a young business, and there's a lot of young people churning through here. But 
there's been something about the the fact that we're part of something bigger now that's really appealed to our staff and and our turnover has just completely stopped. How did you deal with, because I'm thinking of myself as Archer Malmo, and I'm saying, okay, I, I put this offer together uh, on a proprietary deal basis. There aren't competitors on, you know, at the table, and I bring it to Yvonne, and, and, and now she turns around and, and sort of uses that against us in the sense that it, because it wasn't you know, as high as they'd hoped, she's now kind of gone off and, and, and got a bunch of other offers. How did you kind of keep Archer Malmo um, sort of not to get their nose out of joint a little bit? It, it, do, do you see how they could have yeah. <laughs> kind of said, well, you know what, to hell with you. I, you know, we're, we're not interested in, in, in this sort of uh, um, beauty contest. We're going to leave. But they, you, you were able to keep them at the table and, in fact, get a much better offer. How, was, how, how did you do that? What, what was the dance like there? Well, it, there was a period where I think they were a little exasperated with us because it was taking so long for us to get back to them. And during that time, we were actually you know, talking to some other companies. And, and I, I imagine they may have been out looking for other options themselves they because we we didn't have a deal we were mutually interested in each other but we i wasn't quite sure yet and we didn't really know what we wanted to do and and it did take too long for their taste they they were interested in doing a deal very quickly um but at the end of the day we we came back around and they really wanted us and and it all worked out just fine <laughs> You know, but I, I will say they, they probably felt some frustration there for a while, but there was never any ill will because it all, it's just business and you can't blame somebody for trying to get the best deal for their, themselves I, either way. So you did consummate a deal and you agreed in principle. I'm assuming you, you signed some sort of letter of intent that wasn't binding mm-hmm. that, that, that then allowed them to do some due diligence? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then right. and at that point, did you did you have to give up um, negotiating with the others? I mean, when you sign the letter of intent, they typically have uh, you know a period of sixty days where you cannot negotiate mm-hmm. with other people. Is it, was that the case? In yeah, your, yeah, it is. Got it. Got it. So you're you're during this sort of dark period where you're in the n- d- due diligence. Um, at what point did you tell your employees these twenty eight folks? Well, we waited until we had. Um, a deal. It hadn't. It hadn't been completely negotiated, and it, it, but we had a letter of intent, and we had a verbal agreement to sell, and we had worked out all of the particulars. Um, it, it still had to be, you know, completed by the lawyers on both sides, but we waited until it was a, pretty much a done deal to tell the employees, and and that was a really important. And, and I was nervous about this. You know, I was nervous about how are the employees going to take this. Um, and so what we did was we staged um, a staff meeting on a, on a Monday morning, and the guys from Memphis flew in uh, the night before, and they came in, and, and we, had, we had orchestrated it with our PR firm, Wayne Henninger, who, you know, really helped us get the step-by-step for how all of this should be rolled out, both internally and externally to the community and to our clients. And so we had thought through this step-by-step, and the internal rollout was part of that. And the people from Memphis came in, and at that staff meeting, um, they are just charming, 
honest, wonderful people, and our employees could pick up on that. And and they were a little bit tentative and nervous at first, you know, looking at us like, is this okay? Is this, how is this going to be? But um, they just rolled right into it. I, I was surprised how easy it was to get adoption from them. What was the most emotional moment for you personally? Yeah, it was... It's been one long emotional moment, I guess, just feeling that I am not as important to the business as I used to be is something that I'm still getting used to. And in one aspect, it kind of hurts a little bit, but on the other side, it feels wonderfully freeing. So I, I'm not sure, you know, there's just like the two sides of looking at it, but um, the business is thriving now. And we're doing excellent work. Our clients are happy. We're growing. And I love seeing that. And and also, at the same time, I know that it's not because of me. It's because we have great leadership. We have this stable company behind us. And we have good employees who are happy. You know, it's a mixture of all those things. And so it's a little bit of a personal growth um, story for me to just move beyond being the thing that is at the head of the business that that makes it all work. Um, I'm sitting a little more in the background now doing what I'm good at and I'm having a whole lot more fun and I have a much better life. And when my friends see me, they say, wow, you look so relaxed all of a sudden. So it's a good thing, but but there is, uh, you know, that other side where, you know, it's a, it's kind of giving a few things up. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it's been about a year since, since the acquisition, is that right? About, uh-huh, not quite. Got it. And and it sounds, for the most part, very successful and, and, a, and a positive experience. What's been the toughest part for you about being an employee? Because since the age of 28, since 1980, mm-hmm. you have not been managed by anybody. And now you've got right. a boss and you've got another owner. I mean, what's been the toughest part about that? The toughest part really is just... Um, not being able to sort of come up with an idea or a priority and have it be everybody else's priority. It's like suddenly it might be the right thing or it might not be the right thing for this much larger business. And, um, and so tempering, tempering that within myself, that, that urge to um, improve, like improve something about the company. Well, that might not be a priority for the rest of the management team. And and at the same time, I try to see that as an opportunity to not be so hard driving and not be so focused on the business and like just like lighten up a little bit, I guess, about about it all. <laughs> Tell us if you'd known then what you know now, what you might do differently if you had the the entire thing to do over again. Um, well, I would have gotten our books in order a lot sooner. We were operating the business more as a lifestyle business up until the time we sold it. And if I had known then what I knew, what, what I know now, I would have planned to sell. It was almost an impulse Thing that we just decided, well, maybe this is the right time. So I would have implemented a little financial rigor, you know, three or four years ahead and, and made a plan to sell uh, and built the company up to sell. Um, that, that would have been a good idea. 
Talk I, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, because financial uh, acumen is not my great strength. I came from a creative, the creative side of the business, and that's really um, where I'm best suited to succeed. So I had always had a hard time really managing the finances of the business or even managing the person who manages the finances, knowing when it's done right and when it's not. And um, that has been a, a challenge for us. And um, I, I, for a long time, I didn't even know what a poor job our financial person was doing. And we even hired a virtual CFO to come in and examine the books. And, and he didn't have enough rigor to really pull the, the blankets up and look underneath and say, hmm, not, not quite doing this right. So, um, so I would have, I would have realized sooner rather than later, the importance of being very buttoned up financially. It's such a good point built to sell listeners because, you know, it, when you go to sell, there are going to be a thousand things you've got to go through in due diligence and, and trying to, at that point, get your books in order. It's just one thing that you just don't need in that 60 days due diligence. There's a thing you can, you can hire an accounting firm to do something called pre-diligence, uh, which is a, a sort of a spin on due diligence. Pre-diligence is where you would hire an accounting firm to basically get your business ready to sell, to, to do the, in particular, you're getting your bookkeeping and your accounting uh, sort of polished to a point that is ready to present to an acquirer. Um, it's called pre-diligence, and in a lot of cases, it may you know may pay off uh, as a good investment over time. Certainly, over a less stressful exit if uh, um, if you go through the process. So, last question, Vaughn. I mean, what are you up to now? So, you're still uh, working in the company, and um, and how you know how has life changed for you personally? I mean, you've got a check that you've cash hopefully uh, uh -huh. did you did you buy yourself a trophy did you buy yourself a new house I mean, what, <laughs> what did you what did you indulge in um i indulged in a tesla which i uh, just adore driving and um you know my my husband and i are traveling a whole lot more and i sleep better at night and i'm i think a lot more relaxed and more uh pleasant to be around in general uh, it's 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 been a great change. I'm still working full time. I show up to work every day, and I'm um, doing I think what I'm best at, and I'm really enjoying the people in the company more since I don't feel the stress that I used to feel. I I would come to work every day and feel that you know the pressure of the financial situation and just the the tenuous nature of our business weighed so heavily on me that being rid of that has has really been a beautiful thing to experience, you know, after 35 years. So I'm much happier and I do wish I had done it sooner. Well said. Yvonne Tokini, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow. 
W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.